Hi everyone, Scott Fraze here, and welcome back, or for the first time, to When Narratives Collide. We are glad that you are here. Today we'll, we will be reflecting upon the story of Ruth, a foreigner, a widow, and a sojourner who has experienced much loss, yet demonstrates her devotion to the one true God and her mother-in-law by leaving her homeland and journeying towards her true home as a follower of Yahweh. While Ruth's story has elements of hardship, there is hope as she experiences the redemption of her story and finds her place in the ultimate story of redemption. Now here is your host, my amazing wife, Rachel Fraze. Welcome back to When Narratives Collide. Today we're going to look at The Immigrant, A Study of Ruth. As I started studying through the story of Ruth, it made me think through the construct of our perspective. We are all tied to our own perspectives. We cannot unhinge or detach ourselves from ourself. In the postmodern world we live in, we are attached to our worldview as being the right construct to see the world in which we live. And although we preach freedom of idea and belief, there is an urging of conformity to the perspective that we ourselves see. In the story of Ruth, we see God use the most unlikely of people to break into the conformity of culture and into the deepest of sorrows. Ruth is dissident in her conformity and uses the most unexpected of tools, vulnerability and weakness to break into the stories of sorrow and into the cultural norms. Desmond Tutu says hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. This is the story of Ruth, a story of hope, an ordinary story in a time of loss, grief, and bitterness, and it uncovers the reality of an extraordinary God. The story of Ruth happened during one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, the same period that the judge Deborah comes from, and yet it is in this story that hope sparks a light that shines brightly, redeeming more than just a family story but the entire nation of Israel and bringing us an even greater redeemer in Christ. Now, many of us can identify with the time period of judges being a dark period. That's 2020 encapsulated loss and sorrow to a whole new magnitude. Many of us have asked what could possibly go wrong from here. And then, There are killer hornets. Collective suffering has a new meaning this year. In the midst of this tumultuous time, this collective suffering, how does the character of Ruth, her story, impact our own stories today? It's always good to help build a picture of who this individual is, to help us identify and know a little bit more. Ruth, she's a foreigner, and for all intensive purposes, she's an immigrant in the land of Judah. She's married to an Israelite 
while living in Moab, her home country, which would put her on the outside in her own community and family. She was married for 10 years, and yet during these 10 years, she remained barren. This sorrow would be compounded by the culture's emphasis on worth and value being found in procreation and the carrying on of a name, which her community would have seen as a failure on her part. After 10 years of marriage, Ruth's husband dies. The sorrow of this loss is not something I can even imagine. To lose the relationship that has been your home, your safety. I would imagine you would feel cast adrift. Then Ruth not only gives up her family, her land, but also her religion. This is loss compounded by loss. She goes to a place where Moabites are disgraced and even disdained. Women were seen as the most vulnerable and often categorized as property. So not only is Ruth disdained because of her ethnicity, but also because of her gender. Now, Ruth's economic situation did nothing to help her situation. She was homeless. She had no sustainable way to provide for herself or for her mother-in-law. They were destitute. Often, it is easy to disconnect from the stories in the Bible. However, within Ruth's narrative, most of us can identify with some part of her story. Maybe you have experienced loss like Ruth has. Maybe you've moved and lost part of your community and feel unanchored. Have you experienced barrenness? Is prejudice and racism a part of your narrative? Is economic hardship a reality in your life? Do you know where your next meal is coming from? What about homelessness? Ruth's story contains all of these elements. And it is precisely these experiences that made her vulnerable in what humanity would perceive as weak. Yet, it is these experiences that disrupted the cultural perceptions of the community in Israel and the emotional trauma of Naomi. Her vulnerability is not what this world would perceive as powerful, and yet her humility, her service, and her vulnerability ends up being the catalyst for great change. One thing I've loved about Ruth's story is that often Ruth gets painted as this docile and obedient um, daughter-in-law. And yet what you really see unfold within this story is yes, humility, yes, servanthood, all of those things, vulnerability. And yet at the same time, there's this tension of tenacity, of boldness, of courage, of Ruth 
being Ruth. Actually, in the Hebrew canon, we see that the book of Ruth actually follows Proverbs, which means that it follows Proverbs 31. And I think that there's this incredible symbiotic relationship between the two corresponding books, Proverbs 31 and the book of Ruth, as Ruth is illustrating what the Proverbs 31 woman actually looks like. Now, we could do an entire teaching on the Proverbs 31 woman because if you're anything like me, this proverb used to drive me crazy. Um, And it felt like this unattainable expectation or this unattainable standard of womanhood. And yet what you see is this woman that works hard, that takes care of her family, takes care of the finances, that she is involved in everything. She wasn't limited to the household to household duties. She wasn't barefoot and pregnant. We see a woman that did it all and thrived while doing it. Now, I don't think that that's what the proverb is asking women to do, to be all, to do all. And I don't think it's setting this unattainable standard, but I think it also gives a picture of freedom of All women were doing during that time and all women can do. And we see that Ruth illustrates the same thing, that she defies cultural expectation and goes beyond what is estimated and expected of her. We've talked a little bit about who Ruth is, but it's important to understand the setting in which her story takes place. That this is during the time period of the judges. So this is the dark days of disobedience, um, which we talked about during the episode on Deborah. And so we see that there's Israel is being oppressed by other nations. We see that Israel is not truly following God. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. And yet in the midst of that, we see a woman And not just any woman, but an immigrant, a woman from a different nation. And not just any nation, but Moab, which would have been considered an enemy of Israel. They were not highly looked upon. And actually, in the law, God tells Israel not to intermarry with the Moabites. However, we're going to see this migrant woman actually exemplify God's character and God's love more than Israel herself. The irony is that Israel was supposed to be an example to the nations, and yet we see that God actually has to use someone from the nations to show God's people who he is his love and his care for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the oppressed. Now, not only was it during the time of the judges, but we actually see that this story takes place in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. Now, 
in this town, we see at the beginning of Ruth that a famine actually has taken hold of this town. So in the house of bread, there is no bread. And that is really the catalyst for Naomi and her family leaving Bethlehem. Chapter one of Ruth really sets the stage for what's happening. There's a famine. Naomi, her husband, leave Bethlehem and they end up in Moab. And it's here in Moab where we see a fuller picture, the true loss that happens. Naomi loses her two sons and not only that, but her husband as well. And it's here that she hears a stirring that something's happening back in Bethlehem and she decides to return. It is at this part in the story that you see that Naomi is empty. Not only is her stomach empty, but her arms are empty as well. Now, something I love about Naomi is that she is real. What you see is what you get. And when the women ask after her, she says, call me Mara, which means bitterness. That life has made her bitter. This emptiness has made her bitter. Honestly, there's this realness about Naomi and the way she feels and the loss and the pain that feels safe to me. It feels real. It feels authentic. And God doesn't tell her that she needs to change. He lets her be where she's at. Yet contrasted to that place, we also see a picture of Ruth as she's confronted with these realities of her life, we see her have a different response. As Naomi heads back to Bethlehem, she tries to also send her daughter-in-laws back to Moab and says, you have nothing if you come with me. At least if you return to Moab, maybe you can get remarried. Maybe you're given a child. But with me, it's a dead end. And so her one daughter-in-law, Oprah, goes back to Moab. But you see Ruth, she does not. She does not obey Naomi. She refuses. And we actually see that she responds in the exact opposite way to her sister-in-law, the exact opposite way from what her mother-in-law was telling her to do. She disobeys Naomi. Now, Ruth doesn't just follow from a distance. It says that Ruth holds tight to Naomi. The Hebrew word used here is actually cleave or to grasp. And it's this language that um, denotes this connotation of a vow or a marriage or even a covenant. Ruth is deliberate in her disobedience, but she also takes initiative. She takes the risk of an uncertain future in a land that she does not know with people she does not know. She is going to a people where she knows her position will carry little respect as a Moabite. She will be an outsider 
ostracized in every respect as a Moabite, as a woman, and as a widow. From the outside looking in, Ruth's choice seems unwise, and yet Ruth's initiative is impressively absolute. And she attaches herself to Naomi, this woman that is hopeless, empty, and yet Ruth chooses to invest without knowing if she will ever get a return, if Naomi will ever have hope again, if she will ever not be bitter. Chapter one ends and you see this picture of mutual grief, of mourning, of loss, of emptiness, of brokenness. If this doesn't sound like 2020, I don't know what does. (laughs) And yet, we see the response. Two very valid responses. Bitterness and hope. Now, chapter two starts and... Ruth has just moved from everything she's known to a new place. And if any of you guys have ever moved, you know what that feels like. Mr. Phrase is actually going to share a little bit of our story and how this relates to us. Homelessness is more than a pandemic that affects so many people due to various causes. It is also part of the human condition which manifests itself in a longing desire for our true home, a place of peace, refuge, and rest. Simply put, it is a desire for a place and a people, a desire to belong. And indeed, as followers of Christ, uh, the call to follow him is almost in a sense a call to homelessness and something we're called to embrace as followers of Jesus Christ as he leads us to the place our hearts so desperately yearn for. Back in May, I was walking with one of our pastors through the cemetery across the street from our church as we have done many times before. As usual, we are discussing life, family, ministry, and the problems therein, and he stopped and turned to me and asked, if Jesus was walking with you right now, what would he say to you? Two simple yet profound words came to mind, follow me. Little did I know that in the days, weeks, and months that would follow, these two words would become a resounding and comforting and orienting call from Christ that I would cling to. Now, Rachel and I were married in July of 2010 and have lived in Montana, Colorado, New York, and Massachusetts and are currently living in Pennsylvania. About a year ago, we had the opportunity to rent a house in the town that we were living in that was within walking distance of our church. We had lived in a two-bedroom apartment on a seminary campus for four years, and uh, three kids later, the walls were quickly closing in on us. And we were desperate for not only a larger space, but also a place that could become a home for our family. So we jumped at this opportunity to rent a house. Throughout our marriage, we had only lived in apartments or with family and were desperate for a house of our own that would be a place of rest, a place of refuge and peace, not only for us, but for all who stepped across the threshold into our home. We truly felt that we were becoming rooted in the town that we were living in, and rooted in our church family and in our neighborhood. We began leading and regularly hosting a small group, inviting friends over and having friends drop by, uh, even hosting family that would come to visit us and getting to know our neighbors. 
and then COVID. To make a long story short, in June, our landlords decided to sell their house. Uh, this was unexpected to us and caught us off guard, and coupled with the high cost of living in Massachusetts and a host of other factors, this became the catalyst for us deciding to move to Pennsylvania, where Rachel's family lives. This season has been particularly difficult and confusing, and suffice it to say, it feels like we have been uprooted and are withering in this process of being transplanted. We feel homeless, as we feel like weary sojourners heading somewhere, but the way, the destination, seems to be obscured by this thick fog. Then, akin to the beam of a lighthouse cutting through the densest fog bank, is the beckoning call of the Good Shepherd to follow him. In this season, the scripture that has provided the most comfort and guidance are the words from Jesus from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now I know that may seem like a strange scripture to find comfort in, but it really has become a verse of comfort and uh our life during this season and we were talking uh to some friends recently and one of them pointed out uh this idea of uh i kind of feel like jesus here <laughs> nowhere to lay my head and she said well hey look at it this way you're imitating christ and uh there's something comforting in the reality of uh, Jesus in his life and what he experienced and what he calls us to uh, that he we're not following aimlessly but he's following but he's leading us somewhere as we follow him to the true home that awaits us and all who seek him. Ruth is in this same situation. She's homeless. She is in an unknown environment. Her gender, status, and ethnicity are highlighted and yet also ostracize her from society. Yet, she goes to the field. It's harvest time, and she's presented with the choice. Who does she trust, and who does she follow? Ruth is the weakest person conceivable by cultural standards, and yet she does something. She acts. I love what Ellen Van Wold in her book of Ruth and Naomi says. It says, perhaps if you're weaker, you also have to be much more courageous than if you're a strong person. For people of power, of status, and position, and privilege, we often don't recognize and often can't conceive of what it takes to act, to be courageous. Yet in chapter two, this is what Ruth does. She goes to the field during harvest time. She's humble. She's patient. She asks permission to glean when none was actually required by law, but she does. And yet she also boldly requests to glean in the rows where the women are still putting it into sheaves, making her the first to glean. So we have this, again, this tension within Ruth's character of her humility, 
of her vulnerability, and yet of also her boldness. Ruth knew she needed grace. She needed favor. Ruth says little and acts more. She rose against the current. She is dissent in her resolute action in patience. Ruth knows who she has followed to Judah. Now, chapter three of Ruth makes us ask the question, was Ruth bold or just kind of crazy? Or maybe Naomi was a crazy one as she hatches a plan. She tells Ruth to ready herself and to go to the threshing floor. And here at the threshing floor is where Ruth is called upon to uncover Boaz's feet. And we'll look at what that means a little bit later. And then to be silent and wait for Boaz's response. And we'll see if Ruth actually does what's commanded of her. Naomi is looking at the laws of Israel and calling upon the Leverite marriage, which calls the nearest kinsman to provide an heir to the family. And this is why she calls Boaz a kinsman redeemer, is that he has the ability to redeem the line of Elimelech, which was Naomi's husband. If you're just reading through chapter 3, it seems almost inconsequential what Naomi asked Ruth to do, to go to the threshing floor, but she was asking her to go to an environment that was not safe for a woman, not safe for a widow, and not safe for an immigrant, because this was an environment that was dominated by men and where abuse was prevalent. Not only that, but there is controversy of what Naomi is actually asking Ruth to do. Because some translations say to uncover his feet, Boaz's feet. And so feet is often used euphemistically within the Old Testament, specifically the law, to denote genitalia. So is Naomi asking Ruth to uncover Boaz's genitals, essentially. Or another translation that I read as well is, is Naomi asking Ruth to uncover herself and lay at Boaz's feet, which I thought was an interesting and fitting interpretation as Ruth even asked Boaz to cover her with his garment. We also see in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, that God sees Jerusalem lying as a naked woman, and he takes his cloak and spreads it over her, and thus indicates that he takes Jerusalem as his wife. So we see very similar imagery here as well as Ruth asks Boaz to cover her with his garment, which within this culture and society was a marriage proposal um, that a person would cover their betrothed with one of their garments, and that was the contractual um, evidence of their marriage, as well as sexual relations denoting a marriage. Now, Ruth is shrewd. What she says isn't just 
cover me with your cloak. She doesn't just propose, but she says, spread your wings over your servant. Now, this is the same prayer or blessing that Boaz said over Ruth in chapter 2, where it says, whose wings you have taken refuge under, where Boaz is denoting God. We see here that Ruth actually makes Boaz take ownership. He can't put responsibility back on God. He has to be the one to answer. She's calling forth and saying, you can be the answer to your own prayer, essentially. Ruth forces Boaz to face his own ideals and answer with action. He can't put responsibility back on God. We see that also Ruth is faithful and steadfast in her love for Naomi, that she is obedient, but she also is not silent when Naomi calls her to be silent. We see her take initiative. Um, We see that she actually says, be the answer to your own prayer, Boaz. She forces him into a position where he has to answer with action. So we see her love for Naomi, and it's this love that actually breaks into Naomi's grief and sorrow. Here we see Ruth's complete vulnerability, and yet this vulnerability is also her strength. Now, chapter four ties everything together. And Boaz responded in chapter three and says, wait. And kind of there's this cliffhanger within chapter three. He says, there's actually someone closer that could be your redeemer. And he sends Ruth home with an abundance of grain as a gift to Naomi, which really leaves this sense of waiting that this whole story has been about action about ruth following about ruth going about her movement and yet here we see a pause in the story this anticipation of how is god going to move how is god going to redeem the emptiness the grief the sorrow the brokenness and the need is god going to fill naomi's emptiness now i don't have time to get into the details of chapter four but to suffice it to say we see that god answers in abundance that not only does Boaz marry Ruth but we actually see that she is given a son and thereby Naomi is given a son and this line of Elimelech is carried forth and not only is a line of Elimelech carried forth therefore fulfilling and redeeming this family name but we also see that it's this line that gets carried through to being the line of King David, and eventually the line of Christ. Ruth's story holds so much for so many of us today. What does it mean to follow in the midst of hardship, in the midst of sorrow and grief? What does it mean to feel homeless, to feel ostracized, to feel on the outside, and yet to walk in hope 
And I think for Ruth, as we see her life, we see that she becomes this catalyst that breaks into preconceived notions and ideas about the foreigner, about women, about what society would deem as low in status. I think that this is also the challenge for the church, that Israel believed they were God's chosen people, meant to shine a light in the nations. And yet we see here that it's this lone immigrant that is a light in Israel. Does the world, do the nations sometimes better reflect God's character than the church does? Can vulnerability be someone's greatest strength as it takes the most courage to walk out as someone that is deemed as weak? Can vulnerability break in to grief and sorrow and be an aid of hope? Can vulnerability break into the cultural perceptions of this world? Thanks again for taking the time to listen and think about Ruth's story and how this ancient narrative intersects with your life. Remember that your story is important, and if you, like Ruth, have experienced pain and loss, know that there is hope, restoration, and redemption to be found in Christ and the community of his followers. We hope you've been encouraged and would love to hear from you. You can contact us through our website, journeyofthephrases.com, or through Facebook, or through Instagram. Please feel free to like and share the podcast with whomever may be interested. We have one more episode in this series, and then we'll begin a new one. If there is something that you would like to hear, please let us know. Until next time, take care, be kind to yourself and others, and we will catch you later.